you're a parent, then you know what it's like to feel anxious for your children. I learned this quickly as a parent, that every stage brings new anxieties. So the moment you find out you're pregnant, you are anxious for that child's development. And, and, and you, you walk through that stage, and, and then when labor comes, you are anxious for a safe delivery. Labor passes, and, you, and then you realize that you're anxious for your child's health when they sleep at night in their crib. That stage passes, and then all of a sudden they're playing in the yard, and you're anxious for them to not run into the street. And that stage passes, and they keep growing, and all of a sudden you're anxious that they get their license, now they're driving on that street. And that stage passes, and then all of a sudden they're driving down the street, away from your house, off to college, and you're anxious for, for what's going to happen to them. From the moment you become a parent for the rest of your life, there's this loving anxiousness and concern for the well-being of your children. Paul was the spiritual father of the Thessalonian church. And like any loving parent, he had an anxiousness for them. He had a concern for their good. When we started the series we're in, in First and Second Thessalonians, if you were with us, you remember we went to the book of Acts, and Paul went to Thessalonica with his co-workers. They planted this church. People believed in Jesus Christ, and then persecution arose. And while Paul would normally stay with the disciples and seek to establish them in their faith, he was forced to flee. And he couldn't stay with these newborn believers and nourish their faith, and be with them, and watch over them, and cause them to grow. In chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul told the Thessalonians how he felt during that time. He said to them, I was afraid. I was, I was afraid that you wouldn't be standing firm in the faith. I was afraid that the persecution would be too much for you. I was afraid that Satan would have his way and tempt you to disbelieve. And he actually says, I could bear it no longer. I couldn't bear thinking about how you were doing and not knowing. So finally he sent Timothy to go see. He said, Timothy, go to Thessalonica. Find out how they're doing. Because I'm not sure that they were ready for this. And so Timothy goes. And as we saw, he brings good news back to Paul. He says, Paul, they're standing firm in the faith. And not only are they standing firm in the faith, they're actually sharing their faith. They're telling others about Jesus. Not only are they telling others about Jesus, they are actually being persecuted for that. And they're doing it anyways. And they're rejoicing in their persecution. Paul, this church is doing so well. And this is why Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. It's to write to this church and and tell them how thankful he is to God that God has protected them and borne fruit through them. And it's to encourage them, keep going. Persevere, keep moving forward, do what you're doing more and more until Jesus comes. But now as Paul closes this first letter, just like new fears arise in our lives as parents for each stage our children enters into, Paul's closing this letter and he's thinking ahead. He's thinking of their future. They've made it this far, but what about the road ahead? 
Will they persevere to the end? This morning, church, by God's grace, you have made it from the day you first believed until now. Think about your life from the first day you believed in Christ to today. What trials has God kept you through? What sins has God delivered you from? What temptations has God given you endurance to bear under to get to this morning? By God's grace, you have made it this far. But then we also ask, what about tomorrow? What about in 2019? What about in 10 years? Where will you be in 20 years? What about when suffering hits harder than it has ever hit your life before? What will you do? What about when you give into temptation that you never thought you would give into? What will your response be? What about when persecution comes and everything that you have built in your life just seems to be falling apart? It's all falling apart. This is the question this morning, one question that this sermon seeks to answer, that this text answers. Will you persevere? Will you persevere? That's what Paul's asking himself about the Thessalonian church. That's what Paul's thinking of as he closes this letter. God has brought them this far, but will they persevere to the end? And what did Paul do with that question? As that question was raised in his mind, what did he do? He looked to the only one who had the power to do anything about it. He prayed. He prayed. And this morning, we're going to dive deeply into this final prayer in Thessalonians, and we're going to see what Paul prayed. We're going to see what God's answer is. So open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. The title for today's sermon is, He Will Surely Do It. He Will Surely Do It. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This morning I want us to answer four questions about Paul's prayer. We're going to spend a lot of our time looking at Paul's prayer. Towards the end of the sermon, we'll look at the final instructions he gives. But what we're going to do is look at these four, this, this prayer and ask four questions about what he prays and and what we can learn from it, and, and, and the goal is, in those four questions, is to answer the question, will we persevere? 
So, so there's one question we're really seeking to answer today. Will we persevere? Will you persevere? Will I persevere in the faith? As we look at Paul's prayer, we're going to see the answer to that question. And so the first question this morning, and, and we have it on the slides here, is who does Paul pray to? Who does Paul pray to? Look at how Paul addresses God in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The God of peace himself. Paul prays to God as the God of peace. And before we go any further this morning, we just need to get a vision of, of what Paul's seeing here. We need to get a vision of this God of peace for ourselves. Who is this God of peace that Paul's praying to? Well, to say that God is a God of peace is, is really to, to bring in a lot of truth about God into three little words. He's a God of peace. First, to say he's a God of peace is to say this God is peace. He is peace. Within himself, God inherently is peace. And this is true because the Bible teaches that God is triune. God is three in one. We're not supposed to understand that. We're supposed to worship before that truth that this God is greater than we are. That this God is bigger than we are. We're not supposed to understand him, but, but we affirm that God is three persons in one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who God has always been. For eternity past, he has been three in one. What this means is that God is not a lone ranger. It means that God, before creation, God didn't live in isolation. God lived in community. Forever, God lived in, in a loving relational, harmonious community of peace. And that's how we can say God is peace. Because he's always lived in peace. He's always inherently within the triune God that we worship. He is peace. He knows peace. He exhibits oneness and wholeness and harmony from eternity past. This is, this is the God we worship, the God of peace. But that's not all that we can say about this, is, is it? Because the Bible tells us that the God who is himself peace is also a God who makes peace. So he is peace, but he's also a God who makes peace. The Bible teaches that through sin, we became enemies of God. And through that sin, this world that we live in was broken. It was broken. And, and, and we see it every single day. We see the brokenness of our world in every way through, through disasters, through sin, through death, through, through corrupt governments. We see it all the time. And the reason is that, that Adam and Eve disobeyed this God who invited them into this relationship, this good God, that they rejected his rule. We all with them have rejected his rule. We, we have made enemy lines and said, we are opposed to you, God. We've we, we made ourselves hostile to him. And what the Bible says is that God, in response to our hostility, sought to make peace. He didn't leave it like that. He entered into that. Colossians 1.20 says that through Christ, God was reconciling, that is, God was making peace. He was reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Let me ask you, church, in both those cases, how does God make peace? By the blood 
of his son, by the death of his son, by the cross of Jesus Christ, that the wonderful message of the Bible is that God not only knows peace inherently, but that he's a God who makes peace where there's hostility. He's a God who, who comes into what is broken and makes it whole. He's a God who pursues his enemies, who dies for sinners, who restores what is broken. He is the God of peace. That's who we pray to. That's who Paul's praying to. And this leads to one more reality about this phrase, the God of peace. He, he is peace. He makes peace. And therefore, he, he brings peace to our hearts. You see, because God is peace in himself, and because God makes peace with sinners, God is also God who who brings peace to us. He brings us into fellowship with himself. I mean, think about that. This God who has existed for all eternity in, in in this whole relationship within the Trinity of love and and peace invites us into that fellowship. And then he he destroys the thing that broke our peace in sin through the cross. He destroys it. If those things are true, then when we come into the presence of this God, he brings peace to us. His word and his spirit comfort our hearts and and they, they comfort us in our anxiety and our burden and our worry. And God God floods our hearts with his peace. This, this is the God of peace. This is the God that Paul prays to. And think about this. He's, he's contemplating the future of this church. We already, we already heard from earlier that, that there was a point where he was afraid for them. And, and, God, and God showed him, I, I'm protecting them. I'm going to sustain them. But now he's looking ahead. And, and, and again, as he thinks about this question, will they persevere? He looks to God as the God of peace. He brings his anxiety to the Lord. He brings his worry to the Lord. He brings this burden to the Lord and remembers who he is. And this is such a model for us, church. When you're anxious, when you're burdened, when you're in need, you don't begin by just coming to God and, and making requests you begin by remembering who it is that you're praying to. You're praying to the God who is peace, the God who makes peace through His Son, the God who brings His peace to your heart. We pray to the God of peace. This is who Paul prays to. The second question about this prayer that we want to answer this morning is, what does Paul pray in light of? What does Paul pray in light of? That may be an unexpected question. We, we want to know what does he pray for, all right? But think about this. Whenever we pray to God, we're praying in light of something that's going on in our lives, aren't we? There's, there's a set of circumstances that we are in, and we come to God in light of those, and we make requests. And, and so what does Paul pray in light of? Look at how verse 23 ends. He says, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul prays for the Thessalonians, he has one day in his mind. It's the day that Jesus returns. The day that Jesus Christ comes again. This has been Paul's focus in this entire letter, that that, that Jesus is coming again. Remember back in chapter 4, he, he really spent time talking about this with the Thessalonians. And in chapter 4, verse 16, he described the day he comes again and he said this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So, so, so Paul says that there's a day coming when Jesus will come again and he's coming as king. He's coming with the clouds. He's coming with the, the blast of a trumpet. He's coming publicly, powerfully, gloriously. He's coming again the same way he left. He's going to descend from heaven to the earth as king of kings over all the world. That day is coming. And when that day comes, he's returning as not only king, but as savior. Look what he says next in, in chapter 4, 16. He says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So so he's coming as Cain. And when he comes as Cain, he's coming to save his people, to bring his people to himself. Chapter 5, verse 9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when Jesus will return and the people of God will obtain salvation. Which means that, that in a sense, we don't have it yet. We're still waiting for it. We are waiting for the day when, when Christ fully saves us to himself and we're with him forever. That day's coming. But what about those who aren't his people? What does Paul say about them? In chapter 5, verse 3, he says, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So Jesus is returning as king and as savior and as judge. For those who are not in Christ, that is, those who have not repented of their sins, put their trust in Jesus' atoning death, powerful resurrection, who have not given over their lives to following him, the day that he returns is a day of inescapable and everlasting judgment. It's, It's a real day in history. It's a day that's coming. Jesus will return. And when he comes, if you're not in him, if you're not trusted in him, you can't escape. So he says you can't escape, there's no getting away, and and, and the judgment that comes will never end. Jesus is coming as king, as savior, as judge. This is the day that Paul has in mind when he prays for the Thessalonians. This is what he prays in light of. He doesn't ultimately pray in light of the, the temporal circumstances that they were in. He prays in light of this this day that is coming. He lets lets that day inform how he prays. Not the persecutions they're in right now. Not whatever sufferings they're facing right now. Not whatever needs they have right now. but, But the fact that this day is coming and it's real. And it should cause us to evaluate our own prayer life. Do we pray in light of that day? The day when history as we know it ends and eternity begins. The the, the day when Jesus appears as the glorious king of the universe. The day when all of humanity is separated into two. Everyone in the world separated into two. Those who are in Christ, those who are not in Christ. Those who will obtain salvation, those who will experience wrath and will not escape. That day is coming. Do we pray in light of it? It's the most important day in history. It's the most important day of your life. What will happen to you on that day? What will happen to your family on that day? What will happen to your neighbors on that day? 
When Paul said in chapter 5 to live sober-minded, this is what he means. Live in light of that day. And here we see him doing that in prayer. Pray in light of that day. Let the day of Christ's return always be in your mind as you come to God in prayer. That is the circumstance that we should always be thinking of when we pray. Whatever we're going on, whatever's going on temporally, whatever's going on right now, yes, we bring those things to the Lord, but, but, but not apart from remembering that day is coming when Jesus will return as King, as Savior, and as Judge. Okay, so who does he pray to? The God of peace. What does he pray in light of? The day of Christ's return. This leads us to the third question. What does Paul pray for? What is his prayer? He makes two requests. And the first one is that he prays for complete sanctification. Complete sanctification. He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So church, in 1 Thessalonians, to be sanctified is, is what? It's, it's to be made holy, right? It's to be made holy. Chapter 4, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he talks about purity and holiness. To be sanctified is to be made holy. And what we've seen is that sanctification in the Christian life is a progressive thing. It's progressive. It, 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 it never, there's never a morning that, that I'm going to wake up I'm going to say, I have arrived at complete holiness in my life. I don't need to do anything else. I am, I am perfectly holy. That day's not coming for me. That's why Paul says, that's why he says over and over again, he says, even though you're doing this, do it more and more. You're walking the way that pleases God. Walk that way more and more. You're loving each other. Love each other more and more. You're building each other up. Do it more and more. Keep going. Keep growing. Keep persevering. Keep, keep becoming more and more holy. That's what we've seen in Thessalonians. That, that, that's what the, really the second half of the book has all been about. Keep becoming more holy. But here as the book closes, Paul prays for a day when that more and more will be no more. He prays for a day when there won't be any more growing to be had. He prays for a day when we will be holy as God is holy. He says, sanctify them completely. Sanctify them through and through. He prays for a day when they will be completely free from the presence of sin in their lives, when they're totally holy as God is holy. That's his first request. His second request is for thorough blamelessness. Thorough blamelessness. We see it in verse 23, again, the second half. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly is Paul asking the Lord for here? To be blameless is, is literally to be without blame. It's to be without blame. It's, it's, someone looks at your life and just think of, think of uh, if your kids got in a fight, you're trying to figure out who did it, who did what, and and you investigate the facts, and you come to, you come to the conclusion that, that you are blameless in this situation. You did nothing wrong. You, on the other hand, and then you go forward from there, right? So, so blamelessness, is it's, it's, a, it's a pronouncement of someone that had, has done nothing wrong, that is in the right, their conduct has been upright. And, and that's what Paul's praying for. 
And he's praying for a, for a thorough blamelessness. He says that your whole spirit and soul and body would be blameless, which, which is another way of just saying everything about you. He's, he's saying that everything about you would be found to be blameless. Your, your actions, your attitudes, your thoughts, your motivations, that, that if we searched out every nook and cranny of your life and of your heart and of your mind, we, we, we would find nothing to accuse. There would, be, there would be no wrongdoing in there. And Paul prays for that. He prays that as their lives are brought under the examination of Jesus the judge when he returns, that the verdict he will pronounce over their lives is not guilty. Blameless. And, and notice this word, Keep. He says that you may be kept blameless. Doesn't that, doesn't that imply that we already possess this blamelessness today? Right? So that, that you'll keep them blameless. Not that you'll make them blameless, but that you'll, you'll keep them in that blameless status that they have. Listen, I know that today, if you searched out my life, if you searched out my heart, if you searched out my thoughts, you would not walk away saying, blameless. You would not walk away saying that if you look at Phil's entire life, every thought, every motivation, every attitude, there's no wrongdoing. You wouldn't say that. And that's the kind of blamelessness that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about thorough blamelessness, complete blamelessness, the kind of blamelessness that you could not find wrongdoing if you tried. But he says, keep them in it. Keep them blameless, which means that right now, God looks at me, God looks at you, and, and, and he, he says you're blameless even though you're not. He, he, has, he has made a pronouncement over your life, church, of not guilty. He has done that. He has, he has looked at you, guilty sinner, and he has said, not guilty. And he's done that because Jesus took your guilt on the cross. And he gave you his righteousness. And so what Paul's praying here, it's distinct from his first prayer, which is make them completely holy, Here he's saying, uphold your righteous verdict on that day. The day that Jesus comes again, uphold the righteous verdict that you've already pronounced in their lives. God has said you are justified. When that day comes, uphold that justification. Uphold that record of blamelessness that you have imputed to them through Christ. And so what Paul's praying for in these two requests is really one thing. If you put those both together, what is he asking God for? He's asking God for final salvation. Final salvation. Just like we said in chapter 9, Paul said that one day we will obtain salvation, which means that that right now, even though we can say we've been saved, we're still waiting for that day to come, aren't we? We're still waiting for the day we enter into final salvation. That's what Paul's praying for here. He's praying that God would finish what he started in these young believers. He's praying that he would make them holy as he is holy, that he would preserve them on the day that Christ returns, that they would, they would stand in judgment and enter into their glorious inheritance forever. That's what he's asking God to do. And that leads then to the fourth question, how does God respond? How does God respond to this prayer? Look what Paul says in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. 
He will surely do it. Redeemer Church, my prayer in this moment is that God would just cause your hearts to to absolutely revel in these words. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's think about what he says. He, he first reminds the Thessalonians about their calling. He said, God has called you. And, and when Paul says God has called you, these words encompass everything that God has initiated in their salvation. It, 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 it's, a, it's a phrase that describes, here is what God has already done in your life. And church, what has he done? Here's what God has done for you. He he chose you before the foundations of the world. He sent his son to redeem you, to, to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you deserve to die, to rise again from death. He brought the gospel to you. He sent someone, a person, into your life with the gospel to tell you the good news. He gave you a new heart so that you could respond to that gospel. He gave you the gift of faith and repentance. He declared you righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. He adopted you into his family. He sent his spirit to you. He made you his own. This is what God has done. He's called you. And then Paul says, this God who called you is faithful. So what Paul says is that this God who called you is not a fickle God. He's not a God who changes his mind. He's not a God who goes back on his word. He's not a God who starts something and doesn't finish it. I am definitely a starter, church. I'm not as good of a finisher. You go to our house, there, there, there are lots of projects that I have started. And you can easily see what those projects are because they're not done yet. God finishes what he started. He keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. His purpose is unchanging. He remains true to his word. The God who called you is faithful. And here's here's Paul's logic. If this God has called you, and if he's faithful, then he will surely do it. That's what he's saying. If he's called you and he's faithful, then he will surely complete his work in you. He will surely complete his work of making you holy. He's begun holiness in your life, which means that one day you will be completely holy. You you can think about who's in the room and think about our church body and know that one day you're going to know what that person's like when they're holy. (laughs) You're going to know You're going to know who they really are as God made them to be. Because he's going to do it. He's going to make them completely holy. He's going to make you holy. He's going to keep you blameless before him. That justified verdict that he's pronounced, it's not going to change. He's not going to change what he has said. He has said now, you are righteous in my sight, even though you're not. And there's nothing that you can do to change that pronouncement. You will be found blameless on the day of Christ. This is the confidence that Paul has as he prays for the Thessalonian believers. And this is what God is telling us today, church. The God who called you to salvation will not fail to complete your salvation. The God who called you to salvation will not fail to complete your salvation. And that is the answer to the question we asked at the beginning of the message. Will you persevere? Will you persevere, church? 
Yes. On the twin basis of God's calling and God's faithfulness, the answer is an indisputable yes. You will persevere. If you have repented of your sins, then you will persevere in repentance. If you have trusted in Jesus, then you will persevere in trusting in Jesus. If you have denied yourself and taken up your cross to follow him, you will persevere in following him. When suffering hits, you're going to persevere. When temptation comes, you're going to persevere. When persecution arises, you will persevere. You will. But here's the thing. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. You will persevere not because you have it in you. You'll persevere because salvation is a work of God's grace from beginning to end. You will persevere because the whole point, the whole point of your salvation is to magnify the grace of God. That's why he saved you, was was to display his grace, which has nothing to do with your works. If it had anything to do with you, it wouldn't be grace. And, And so if that's true, then, then that here's the thing. God, He says He's faithful. He's faithful to His purpose of grace in your life. He, he has set His grace on you. He has said, I'm going to save this person despite what they've done as, as a way to magnify my grace. So some, no matter what you do, if, if, if the purpose is to magnify that grace, then, then you can't get out of it. You, you can't escape the grace of God. You cannot fall away. He didn't call you because there was something in you. He called you because of his grace. He called you because of his purpose to save you, even though you were sinful. It didn't didn't start on the basis of your works. It's not maintained on the basis of your works. It will not be finished on the basis of your works. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. The God who called you by his grace will complete you by his grace. Praise God. Praise God for his design of our salvation, that it is not based on us, it is not about us, yet we get the comfort this morning of knowing that he will be faithful to us in his grace. Now, practically, what does this mean? What does this mean for how we live our lives? I mean, if, if it's all of grace, does, does it not matter how we live? Can we just do what we want, live it up, it's all grace? If that's how you feel, then you've not tasted the grace of God. Because once you taste the grace of God, here, here's, here's the thing that God does, is, is, is you just want more of it. You want more of Him. The, the, the grace itself is so transformative in your heart and your life that the question, can I do what I want, does not exist anymore if you've tasted the grace of God. And, and so what do we do if it's all of grace? How do we live? What it means is that we are a people who continually cast ourselves on the grace of God. That that is what should define your life. You're someone who continually casts yourself on the grace of God. And this is where I want us to observe the few final verses in this chapter. Paul's final instructions in this letter. Let's look at them again, verses 25 through 28. He says, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Now, one level, these are just closing remarks. You, you, could, you could structure the letter and there'd be, a, there'd be a, a division between the prayer and these remarks. Paul's just finishing his letter now. But as you look at what he just prayed, and then you look at what he's instructing, you realize something. You realize that Paul is calling them to cast themselves on, on what can be referred to as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, which, which is just a way to say that this, these are the, the pathways that God has chosen and ordained to bring his grace into your life through Christ, by his spirit. And so let's look at these. He says, he says, brothers, pray for us. Prayer. Prayer is one of the means of God's grace in your life. And think, think about this. Right after Paul prays for them, he asks them to pray for him. Why does he do that? Because just like them, he needs it too, doesn't he? This is one of the most amazing things about, about what the gospel does to people, is, is that the strongest believers are the ones who recognize their need the most. The, the, more, the more mature you are, the more you realize, I need prayer. And that's because prayer is a pleading for God's grace. The, the mighty Apostle Paul, I mean, think about who Paul is, just suffering, being beaten, going everywhere, preaching the gospel with boldness. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, pray for me. Pray for us. It's a pleading for God's grace. It's, it's a recognition that, that it's all of grace and I need prayer. And it's, it's coming to God in our need and saying, we need your grace today. The Thessalonians needed it. Paul needed it. I need it. You need it. And so, so we pray. Salvation is all of grace. So pray. That's the connection. Because it's of grace, you go to God in prayer. Then he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We take the Bible literally at Redeemer Church. But I don't believe the holy kiss is a timeless mandate. I think a good translation for our day would be greet all the brothers with a holy hug. And in some cases, make it a holy side hug. Okay. What is Paul's point with this instruction? He's not just trying to get people to sign up to greet at the door, you know, greet each other with a holy kiss. No, that's not, that's not his point. He is calling all the church to move toward everyone else in the church in a spirit of love. He's calling the whole church to fellowship. And this also is a casting ourselves on the grace of God. To move toward each other in a spirit of love is to say to each other, I need you in my life. Church, I missed this growing up. I mean, to me, it was was scripture and prayer. And the church was just like, when I need it. You know, just a little boost in my spiritual ammunition. But no, that's not how scripture talks about the church. God has called us to move toward each other as a way to give grace to you. Because salvation is by grace, move toward each other in love. Because that's where God provides his grace to you, is in the fellowship of the believers. Next, Paul writes, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the churches. So, so this is a very strong language, right? He, he puts them under oath before Jesus Christ. He says, read this letter to all the brothers. 
to all the brothers. Now, I don't know if Paul understood yet that this letter was actually scripture, but I do know that he understood that he was an apostle who represented the Lord Jesus Christ and that the church is being laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so he is coming and saying, read this. This this is not about me. This is about Jesus to you, church. And what we know now is this is scripture. So we could even say more strongly, read this letter, right? And and the principle is that, that, that God provides his grace to us through the scriptures. In the scriptures, God has given us a book of grace. It's a book where he provides his grace to you. It's not a book of of how to live for him. It's a book of him providing grace to you to please him. That's what the scripture is. And so hearing the scriptures, coming to the scriptures, is the the act itself is a casting yourself on God's grace. So, So ask yourself right now, do I believe I need God's grace? If you believe that, then dive into the scriptures because this is how God gives it to you. Through the Word. Every time we open God's Word on our own, with our families, with each other, we are confessing our absolute need for God's grace. Salvation is by grace, so devote yourself to the Scriptures. And church, notice one other thing in these verses. How does he refer to the church in these three verses? Brothers, right? Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Have this letter read to all the brothers. He reminds us, the church, we are a spiritual family. As Paul thinks about these believers, he says, this, this, this is my family. So these instructions are not, pray for yourself, get just enough fellowship to meet your own needs, and read the scripture on your own. That's not what he's saying. That's how we think about the means of grace. We think about it very, very individualistically. We, we, we think that the means of grace, these, these things are for me as much as I need it. But no, that's not what Paul says. He says, pray for me, greet each other, have this read to the brothers. This is so important. I want you to see this. It's not just that you need these things. It's that I need you to do these things for me. We are mutually dependent family. And this is how God has designed our perseverance to work. Will you persevere in the faith? Yes, you will. Salvation is all of grace. The God who called you by his grace will save you completely by his grace. But the way he's going to do that is by within the fellowship of the church, you coming to me and you praying for me. You coming to me and you, you bringing the word of God to me and, and, and me doing that to you. We're not just recipients of grace. We are instruments of grace in each other's lives. So as we devote ourselves to prayer for one another, fellowship with one another, speaking the word of God to one another, we are casting ourselves on the grace of God in that. And we're doing that because salvation is all of grace, and this is how God will preserve us. And so pray for one another, move toward one another, speak the word to one another, because salvation is all of grace. As the music team comes to, to lead us in a time of response, I just want to look at this final verse together. Paul ends by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Church, church we need God's grace, and God has provided 
We need it, and he has provided. And he, he has provided grace in the most marvelous way. You, you see, God didn't just say, I'll give grace and, and rub your sins under the mat. He, he, didn't, he, didn't just, he didn't just overlook your sins to give you grace. No, he, he provided grace through Jesus Christ. And this is how we know that the God who called us will complete us. Because it's not just generic grace. The world loves generic grace. God's grace is not the world's grace. God's grace is grace that comes at the cost of the death of Jesus for you. He has purposed to bless us with salvation, even though we don't deserve it. And he's done it on the basis that Jesus took the punishment we deserve. He's called us to eternal life on the basis that Jesus died the death we deserve to die. And so we will never be removed from our standing in grace because it's a standing that is secured in Jesus who died and rose again. It's a grace that comes to us through Christ. And, and because it's in him, nothing you do, nothing that comes your way can ever move you from that grace. By God's grace, we stand in grace and we will persevere to the end to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's do that together this morning. Let's praise the grace of God that he has shown us and stand.